Hello and welcome back to First Pages Readings, where books are celebrated as cultural messengers. And thanks for joining me. Welcome to Episode 61 of First Pages Readings. Today I'll be reading from three nonfiction books, so let's get started. Today's first book is The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria by Ali Amalek. Personal, political, and cultural histories are woven together as stories of hope and promise unfold alongside the daunting and sometimes tragic circumstances of the region. What makes this book especially compelling is the author's generational family stories told in conjunction with the history of Syria that include the Ottoman Empire's rule, French control, the Arab Spring, and more. I learned a lot from reading this book about Syrian history in particular and about the Middle East in general, and highly recommend it. The first page of The Home That Was Our Country. For this memoir, I'll read from the first page of the prologue, titled Leaving. Damascus, May 2013. By the time I left Syria in May 2013, many in my family were happy to see me go. For them, the day hadn't come soon enough. The country was already more than two years into the blackness that would consume it. Its disintegration would see hundreds of thousands killed, millions displaced from their homes both inside and outside Syria's borders. Villages, towns, and cities in rubble. Unknown numbers disappeared, and the futures of several generations stolen. When authoritarian regimes in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya were overthrown in 2011, all eyes turned to Syria, as if it would be next. But despite both peaceful and armed opposition, the regime that had ruled Syria for over 40 years remained entrenched. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who had inherited power from his father, Hafez al-Assad, blamed a foreign conspiracy at work against Syria. The regime dismissed any reports that would belie its accounts of events as fabrications, venomously accusing the media of perpetuating lies. Western journalists had already disappeared and died in Syria, to much international attention. Syrian journalists, professionals, and those initiated in citizen reporting were dying as well, just more silently and in greater numbers. So as far as many in my family were concerned, my being both a dual national American and a journalist added up to nothing but trouble, and the sooner I left, the better. While most foreign journalists were denied legal access to Syria, I had been able to enter and move about Damascus with relative ease. Though I was born abroad, both my parents are Syrian, and more importantly, had registered my birth with the government, in anticipation of our planned return to Syria, where they had intended to raise their family. That meant that I had a Syrian national identity card and the access it can provide. Ever since moving to Damascus in April 2011, I had been constantly answering inquiries as to what I was doing there. Although people regularly pry in Syria, most often about your relatives, 
your marital status or prospects, or your income and property. The question as to why I was in Damascus now was more than mere prosaic meddling. It was potentially dangerous. Today's next book is Not I, Memoirs of a German Childhood by Joachim Fest, translated by Martin Chalmers. This book starts slowly and builds to a potent conclusion as the author writes about his family's history and their intellectual pursuits, including literature and music. But at the book's core, the author, who is a journalist and historian, outlines in many details the price his family and other like-minded German citizens paid for their anti-Hitler stance. This is an important book that uncovers the ethical decisions as well as the uncertainty that many German citizens faced during this time in their country. For Not I, I'll read from the book's introduction by Herbert A. Arnold. This is a quite unusual memoir in several respects, yet it is a memoir all the same. Ever since St. Augustine's Confessions, the genre has been defined as an ex post facto ordering of selective parts of a person's past to explain how he or she became who they are at the moment of retrospective. Achievements of adulthood tend to dominate, while childhood and youth are often underreported. Not here. Fest insists in his subtitle and in his book on describing in considerable detail his early years, between his birth in 1926 and the early post-war years. He leaves out altogether the adult achievements for which he is actually known, and ends with a brief postscript about his reaction to the unification of Germany in 1989-90. Moreover, instead of focusing on his own life, he chooses to devote an extraordinary amount of attention to his father, of whom he presents an astonishing portrait. The other emphasis is on the times as experienced by an intelligent but naive youngster and his education, both formal and informal. And they are unusual times indeed. Born into the Weimar Republic and its social and political turmoil, Fest has just begun school when the Nazis come to power in 1933. They and his family's firm and costly refusal to cooperate with the new regime will shape the narrative until near the end of the war, when young Joachim is drafted, survives the battle at Remagen, and is captured by American troops. He returns to Berlin, the city with which he identifies most strongly, and begins his work as a journalist and eventually historian of recent German history. What makes this book so remarkable, however, and may well explain its extraordinary success in Germany, where it became a bestseller with staying power, are the portraits of his family, of fellow Germans, and of the times. A major part of that success lies in the complexity, the contradictions, and the conflicts endured by the characters in this memoir. No simple black-and-white picture, good and evil, right and wrong conflicts, although they are there, of course, but the conflicted and sometimes self-contradictory nature of the protagonist makes for compelling reading. Here are real and not always likable people trying to live a life guided by principles which are in direct and consciously maintained conflict with the prevailing political and social environment.
And here's the record of their battles, their survival, and the cost of refusing to collaborate with a state and a regime they recognized as evil earlier than most. Today's third book is a more lighthearted memoir. It's titled Funny and Farsi, A Memoir of Growing Up Iranian in America by Firoze Dumas. Born in Iran, the author's family moved to Southern California in 1972 when she was seven years old. The book is composed of a series of personal stories or vignettes that are mostly humorous and recounts the author's experiences of adjusting to a new culture as a young child including stories about her parents and their language and cultural challenges. The first page of Funny and Farsi, Leffingwell Elementary School. When I was seven, my parents, my 14-year-old brother Farshid, and I moved from Abadan, Iran, to Whittier, California. Farid, the older of my two brothers, had been sent to Philadelphia the year before to attend high school. Like most Iranian youths, he had always dreamed of attending college abroad, and despite my mother's tears, had left us to live with my uncle and his American wife. I too had been sad at Farid's departure, but my sorrow soon faded, not coincidentally, with the receipt of a package from him. Suddenly, having my brother on a different continent seemed like a small price to pay for owning a Barbie complete with a carrying case and four outfits, including the rain gear and mini umbrella. Our move to Whittier was temporary. My father, Kazim, an engineer with a national Iranian oil company, had been assigned to consult for an American firm for about two years. Having spent several years in Texas and California as a graduate student, my father often spoke about America with the eloquence and wonder normally reserved for first love. To him, America was a place where anyone, no matter how humble, his background could become an important person. It was a kind and orderly nation, full of clean bathrooms, a land where traffic laws were obeyed and where whales jumped through hoops. It was the promised land. For me, it was where I could buy more outfits for Barbie. We arrived in Whittier shortly after the start of second grade. My father enrolled me in Leffingwell Elementary School. To facilitate my adjustment, the principal arranged for us to meet my new teacher, Mrs. Sandberg, a few days before I started school. Since my mother and I did not speak English, the meeting consisted of a dialogue between my father and Mrs. Sandberg. My father carefully explained that I had attended a prestigious kindergarten where all the children were taught English. Eager to impress Mrs. Sandberg, he asked me to demonstrate my knowledge of the English language. I stood up straight and proudly recited all that I knew. White, yellow, orange, red, purple, blue, green. The following Monday, my father drove my mother and me to school. He had decided that it would be a good idea for my mother to attend school with me for a few weeks. I could not understand why two people not speaking English would be better than one. But I was seven, and my opinion didn't matter much. Until my first day at Leffingwell Elementary School, I had never thought of my mother as an embarrassment. But the sight of all the kids in the school staring at us before the bell rang was enough to make me pretend 
I didn't know her. The bell finally rang, and Mrs. Sandberg came and escorted us to class. Fortunately, she had figured out that we were precisely the kind of people who would need help finding the right classroom. My mother and I sat in the back while all the children took their assigned seats. Everyone continued to stare at us. Mrs. Sandberg wrote my name on the board. Froze. Under my name, she wrote, Iran. She then pulled down a map of the world and said something to my mom. My mom looked at me and asked me what she had said. I told her that the teacher probably wanted her to find Iran on the map. The problem was that my mother, like most women of her generation, had been only briefly educated. In her era, a girl's sole purpose in life was to find a husband. Having an education ranked far below more desirable attributes, such as the ability to serve tea or prepare baklava. Thank you for spending time with me today. If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe.